Okay. If, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, if you could uh, take those Bibles out, you're going, you're going to need your Bible this morning. I tell you that every week. And if you could open up to 1 Kings chapter 19, it's really fun while you're doing that. Just, you know, if you ever want to know, does a pastor actually think during his preaching? The answer is yes. And uh, so I'm watching you, watching me, and there's all sorts of thoughts that go through my mind. It's rather entertaining. One of them, before I get up to preach, is watching how many of you are keenly looking to me to get you started so you can get done with this ridiculous greeting time. And so I'm going to begin prolonging that time to an hour and a half. So uh, either that or join a life group. You've got one of two options. Hopefully you have your Bibles open to 1 Kings chapter 19, and we are in a series, it's a Standing in the Gap series. This is going to be a run-on series. Every once in a while we'll take a deep look at a character, a man or a woman from the Word of God, and we'll examine that person's life and extract from that life principles and examples for us and our faith, because our faith tends to move. It's liquid. It's fluid. It's not always raging. It's not always strong. Sometimes it flags. Sometimes it struggles. And we need constantly our cloud of witness. And I'm going to give you one of those clouds of witnesses, that one of those persons who sits in that cloud of witness, witnesses. He's not even from the Bible. He has lived just a while ago, but he is with the Lord now. His name is Charles Spurgeon. He's one of my favorite preachers, arguably one of the greatest preachers of human history. He once wrote, in his battle with depression, he said, I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. Martin Luther, that great reformer, fell into such a dark, prolonged period of depression. His wife, Catherine, you got to love her. Ladies, you have a vital role with your husbands, obviously vice versa. But Catherine, seeing her husband in this, this lull for a period of time, a season of time, put on a black funeral dress with a black veil. And when Luther came home from the office... She greeted him at the door, dressed like she's going to a funeral, and he said to her, who died? And she responded, God. He said, Catherine, why this foolishness? It's true, she persisted. God must have died or Dr. Luther would not be so sorrowful. That's what it took to bring Luther out of this pit of depression that he had fallen into. Abraham Lincoln once said, did you know Lincoln could struggle like this? He said, I am the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. Friends, seasons of dark despair have been experienced by many, many great servants of God. And they're called, <clears throat> in the scripture, they're called wilderness or desert experiences. And if you've never experienced a season 
of discouragement and a season of melancholy, as the Puritans would call it, a season of depression as its modern day term describes it, then it might be hard for you to appreciate the power of depression. I can recount two major seasons of depression that I've experienced. You know, people, if you've been here for the last year and a half, people will commonly remark, Tim, you've lost a lot of weight recently. How did you do it? Well, what most don't know and what I've only confided in with a few was that in the latter part of 2010, I went through a season of depression. You know, some people eat when they're depressed. For me, for whatever reason, I stopped eating very much. And I couldn't explain it. There would be times where on Saturday evenings, it would be 6.25. Church starts at 6.30. And I'd be in that main office with the doors locked, and tears were just streaming down my face, and I didn't know why. I would pray, Lord, what is wrong with me? I've got to go preach. It is frightening to fall into depression. Because you don't know, and I did not know, Lord, will I get out of this? It feels like you're in a pit, and there's not a door out of it. There's no ladder to climb out of it. You really begin to feel the dark pressure of despair. It just laps right underneath your nose, and you feel like you're going to drown in it. And you don't know if you're ever going to get out. Life becomes colorless, mute. There's no joy. And yet God used that season in my life and it persisted for months. He used that time in my life to bring me closer to him, to refine me a little more for his purposes, to break the hold of sin in a couple different areas a little more in my life and give me freedom. I never would have counseled anybody. I never had. That when you're depressed, you can anticipate God freeing you from bondages in your life. I've never told a person that in all the years of counseling that I've done. Yet that's precisely what happened to me. Elijah experienced incredible ministry results. We've been seeing them on Mount Carmel. Fire from God coming down and incinerating the, the sacrifice, bringing Revival to the people of Israel, yet days later, maybe even five. He's sitting in this wilderness, this metaphor for depression, underneath a broom tree, not wanting to even live. Look with me, if you will, at the beginning of chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel, verse 1, All that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. How did Elijah get to the broom tree? How did he land in the wilderness? What are the factors underpinning his life? And most importantly, perhaps, are you struggling with depression? A lot of us in our church are. I get to hear your stories. And if you're not now, friends, likely one day you will go through a season of dark despair. 
it is almost universal. And what brings you to that broom tree and how God brings you out of that wilderness is captured largely in what we're going to see in Elijah's life. And there's no way I can finish it today. We're going to start today. I'm going to give you four factors that led Elijah to that broom tree in that wilderness. And next week, we're going to see a little bit more and how God led him out of it. Jezebel is told by Ahab all that Elijah had done. Now listen, this is remarkably interesting. Ahab doesn't tell Jezebel all that God had done. Listen, look for the godlessness of Ahab. Look for the secular bent in his heart. By secular, we mean common, world-based. He's telling Jezebel, his wife, maybe he came home like many of us do. And maybe they got together at the kitchen table and a Phoenician cup of tea was there, hot and steaming for Ahab. Jezebel was an on Mount Carmel, it seems. And maybe they're debriefing the day. And Ahab's telling Jezebel, listen, you should have been there to see all that Elijah had done. Not what God had done, all that Elijah had done. And this is what he did. He killed the prophets. Not Jezebel. You should have heard Israel shout out for God. You You should have seen the revival. He killed the prophets. Now, ladies, I don't know what you do when your husbands debrief their day or vice versa. But you've got a redemptive role in marriage. It's a covenantal role. Your job is to redeem your spouse's heart. You've got to give wisdom and discernment back to them. Don't fall into their frustrations of the day and leave them there. Bring them to the throne of God's mercy. Jezebel is happy to leave Ahab there. She scorns her husband. He is weak. Listen, if you follow the story of Jezebel and and, and Ahab, you see a weak husband who is not the leader. You see a powerful woman who usurps his throne. What do you mean you want Naboth's vineyard? Then just take it. Don't just ask to buy it. Go out and take it. And she says, since you won't, I will. And she kills Naboth so that Ahab can have his vineyard like a spoiled child. This is the relationship they have. And imagine for a second that Ahab is telling Jezebel all of what happened, all of what Elijah had done and how he killed the prophets of Baal, all 450 of them. Where was Ahab when Elijah's killing them? Well, if you know the story, he went up to the top of Mount Carmel for an early dinner. He had the power. He's the king. If he really didn't want Ahab, and if he was really leading powerfully, if he didn't want Elijah to kill those prophets, he could have stopped him from doing it. This is what's inciting Jezebel to action, and we see it in verse 2. Then Jezebel, not Ahab, sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of those prophets by this time tomorrow. Now you read that, and I read that, and it finally struck me this last week when I was preparing this. 
Right before there, in the last part of chapter 18, we see Elijah in the power of God outrunning Ahab in his chariot back to the gates of Jezreel. So you've got Elijah at Jezreel, the city. You've got Ahab and Jezebel in Jezreel, the city. They're all three there, and Jezebel sends a messenger with a death threat. But if she really wanted Elijah dead, she would have sent a hit squad of soldiers. Now, you've got to think like this. Use some holy imagination. What's the threat for? She knew where he was because the messenger found him. If she really wanted him dead, if she really wanted to move in the face of all of the revived fervor of Israel, which she was not willing to do, she was politically savvy. If she really wanted to kill him, why send a messenger and why not just kill him? And it's there that you begin to start seeing there's a bit of a bigger picture forming. Now listen to this because this is important. Because it sweeps us into the story. Jezebel is the archetype of Satan. You see wicked Jezebel who wanted nothing to do with God and is killing God's prophets and ushering in pagan idolatry. You see Jezebel and behind the scenes you're seeing a much bigger, stronger picture. This is Satan. And Satan, who was declawed at the cross, breathes out threats and breathes out intimidation, hating every one of us who call ourselves Christians, wanting to kill us if he could, but our sovereign God puts him on a leash. He is a roaring lion breathing out threats. Why does a lion roar? Well, there are a few reasons. The Bible helps us understand. Amos chapter 3, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? And the rhetorical answer is no. A lion sneaks up on its prey. It's got its pride strategically located around the herd of animals looking to call out of the herd the weakest and the most vulnerable, therefore the roar. And the roar incites the herd to action. And almost invariably, one of those animals will separate from the herd, and there the pride goes. Jezebel roars, and surely, surely, listen, this is Elijah. Remember all of the incredible things that he has done. Surely when Jezebel roars, Elijah will stay in peace. He will do what Peter later counsels us to do. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Surely, surely Elijah will resist him, resist her in this case, firm in his faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by his brotherhood throughout the world, that would be Elijah. Because as frightening as Jezebel and as frightening as Satan can be, he can be overcome by faith in Yahweh. He can be resisted. 
And our mighty prophet who seemed so high above us, didn't he seem untouchable? Listen, haven't you been in this series going, this guy's amazing. He seemed so high above us, he hears the roar of Jezebel, toothless because of the sovereign king of kings, yet he flees for his life. Verse 3, then he was afraid. Look at your Bibles. And he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Listen, Christian brother and sister, when you hear Satan roar, He wants you to start running, not to the cross, but apart from the community of God's people, out on your own, where he can have you for himself. Do you know how often we see that happening? Difficulty comes to a Christian's life in this church of Cornerstone. And all of a sudden, instead of coming into community, and instead of coming to one another for strength and help and protection and accountability and support, they go off on their own and they disappear for weeks. By the time we finally get to see them again, their tales of spiritual desolation are complete. It's what Satan wants you to do. And isn't it shocking like it is for me to see Elijah, this mighty, fearless man running from Jezebel? Not only, listen, look at your text. Not only did he flee, the text very poignantly says he ran for his life straight south to Beersheba, 95 miles almost straight down to the very southern edge proximity of the the land of promise. It would have taken him probably normally six to seven days to travel that many miles. They average 15 miles a day walking. But he's fleeing, and it probably likely took less than that. And then he gets to Beersheba, and look what the text says. He went a day's journey into the wilderness. He goes 95 miles south and then another 15 miles right into desolation. Now, I don't know about you, but when, when I read or think of the word wilderness... I grew up in central New York, absolutely beautiful. I think British Columbia, I think the Adirondack area, I think lush, fertile, unsettled forests, pine-covered peaks. That's what comes to my mind. That's the imagery that's evoked when I read or hear the word wilderness. But that's not what the Bible calls wilderness. What the Bible means is a wild, uncultivated terrain that's utterly unable to support life. It's where Jesus went for 40 days straight after his baptism to be there with the wild animals. It's wild, Mark says. It's a rocky, dry wasteland. It's often referred to as a place of desolation in the Bible. It's a metaphor, friends, for depression. And Elijah goes out into this wilderness, this wild, uncultivated terrain that cannot support life, and he lies down under a broom tree. A broom tree, or some of your Bibles tell you a juniper bush. A broom tree is a 10 to 12 foot 
high shrub petals with white petals in certain parts of the year. It still grows there, offers terrible shade. And he lies down under it and prays, look what it says, that he might die. This is Elijah. This is our mighty prophet. Elijah, who, listen, fearlessly stood up against the wicked ruling couple, the Bonnie and Clyde of the Old Testament, Ahab and Jezebel. This is Elijah. It's him against 450 wicked prophets of Baal. This is Elijah. Remember he chided Obadiah for his lack of public courage and his faith? This is Elijah who carried that dead little boy up to his room and laid it before God and had the audacity to ask God to bring life back into him. This is Elijah lying in a wilderness under a broom tree, now no longer having the will to live. Listen, you think you're not susceptible to broom trees? Listen, don't think that you can't be where Elijah is. He's not suicidal. Some, you know, you, you read some of these commentaries and you listen to some of these pastors and, and they're saying that Elijah's suicidal. Listen, I worked with suicidal people. This is not suicidal language. This is language that knows that God alone possesses the right to give and take life. And he's simply coming to God and saying, God, please take my life. He had no longer had the will to live. It's a sad, pathetic picture of a man firmly in the grips of depression. And he's not unique. Listen, don't you remember Moses from Numbers? Moses asked God to kill him on the spot. He did. Numbers 11. Job wished that even the day that he was born would disappear. Not, not just wished that he never was born. That was Jeremiah who cursed the day of his birth. Job wished that the calendar date that he was born would be obliterated from the calendar. Jonah asked God to take away his life. There are great, great men of faith that found their way to the broom tree. And that longing for release and escape, it's not uncommon when we suffer, and it's very common in depression. There's many people that I've counseled, one in particular, a 15-year-old girl in Virginia, who when she came into our residential psychiatric center, made her way straight to her bedroom, and if we didn't force her to come out into the program activities, she literally would pull the covers over her face and sleep 24 hours a day. Part of that was medication, and part of it was she had no will to live. And there's some here, undoubtedly, and I don't blame you, who have a skeptical mind when it comes to depression. It's an excuse. Just suck it up. Be responsible. I get that. And we would be, we, we, we would be really wise to see that there are people who use depression as an excuse. They're really just selfish people, and they don't want to have responsibility for any decision. So they pull the cloak of depression around them. It really is a very good alibi. It will ruin your life. 
But depression is real. It has a lot of factors to it. It could cause you to give up your life, your will to live under that broom tree. But listen, here's the interesting thing. These factors in depression, listen to this, they rarely operate by themselves. They cluster. I'm going to show you four of them that were clustering in Elijah. There's more than what I'm going to show you this week and next week. I'm going to show you four this week. And the first one is fear. If you've been on the internet this week on Yahoo News or Fox, you might have seen the video of that little three-year-old precious, beautiful girl at the zoo who's staring eyeball to eyeball with a huge lion. The lion's looking at her right in the eyes. She's looking back at him right in the eyes. She's got her hand up against that only thing protecting her life, that glass barrier. And it seemed like maybe even a minute went by when all of a sudden, staring face to face, the lion rears up and begins furiously pawing at the glass. This is all on video. Furiously pawing at the glass, trying to get through that frustrating barrier to devour that little girl. If that's not a picture of Satan, I don't know what is. God has him on a leash, friend. But the point is, she stood there unflinching. She didn't even flinch the first time. She knew she was safe. And we would think that would be Elijah's response. I mean, how could he doubt that the barrier of glass between he and Jezebel is put there by God's power? How would he even flinch at Jezebel? But he does, and the text says he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. Can I tell you what it really means? Actually, this is such a rare thing to come out of my mouth. The King James Version got it a little bit closer. That even hurts saying that. <laughs> It says, really, in the Hebrew, Elijah saw. Now listen, Elijah saw and ran for his life. Because probably what happened is Jezebel sent the messenger with a written message because she wouldn't trust that to a person. Here's the message. Elijah, you're going to die by this time tomorrow. And whether he saw it literally or metaphorically, because the word in Hebrew could be used either way, he saw the threat and his eyes left this faith in God's power. Once your eyes leave your faith in God's power, your actions will follow. Fear is one of the leading causes of depression. It's often the inability to deal with the future that seems so overwhelming. When we have a fear of what might happen in the future, then we struggle, listen, with what the Bible calls anxiety. You see, anxiety is the what-if fear. It's not rooted in the past. It is not even rooted in the present. Anxiety is what might be about to happen. It's future fear. Now, as one wise old pastor once said, and I've read and I never forgot, anxiety is borrowing trouble from tomorrow. Why would we do that? Cast your anxiety upon God, for he cares for you. He will sustain you, the Bible says. Anxiety, though, and worry, they shift our eyes from the sovereign good God to the threat that we see coming. You see, fear, listen, fear itself is not the problem. Did you know that fear is the most prevalent 
condition of human struggle in the Bible, it's the most often mentioned. We're going to be afraid. Fear is not the problem. It's what your response to fear is that dictates what you worship or who you worship. It's the response to fear that the scripture addresses. It's either we're going to move in fear as a response to fear to the promises of our God, or we're going to move to the idols that we have constructed that will guarantee to give us safety. See, I find it interesting to note the progression we see in Elijah. Look what it says. You can extrapolate this. He ran for his life. Get the verb. He ran for his life. And then he sat down under the broom tree. And then he lay down under the broom tree. That's what fear does. When fear makes you run, you'll eventually be exhausted. And when you get exhausted and you don't move back to God, you'll find yourself stuck. It's the way it works. And it's a picture of living apart from the power and the sustaining might of the word of God. That's the power of fear, and it underpins a lot of depression. But we see another factor, and remember, these, these cluster together, and they're doing that with Elijah. The second one is isolation. I don't even think I need to point this out, but depressed people almost always find themselves alone. Even in the midst of a crowd, they feel alone. And it's almost always by their own choice. Now, some of you don't like hearing that, but it is the truth. I know this by experience. When we get depressed, we tend to leave other people. We want to deal with it ourselves. We don't want to affect other people. What will they think if they see what we're really struggling with? Even within your own family, you could be right in the midst yet apart. Elijah it says in verse 3, he left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. You know, some people believe that this servant was that little boy that he raised back to life in the power of God. I don't think it was. I think that little boy was so small that his mom could carry him. I think that was a little toddler. He wasn't going to separate the toddler from his mother. I don't think that's really who it was. But he left his servant there, and he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And how often when we struggle, the tendency is to move away from people. And that's exactly what Satan wants you to do. That's why the lion roars. Because Almost invariably, one of those wildebeests, in this case, will flee away from the rest of the herd. Go on Google, go on Bing, or wherever you search, your search engine is, and watch these videos. Most of the herd will stay together, but one of them will separate, and that's always the one that they go for. We've seen fear, we've seen isolation. There's another one, there's pride. You know, most depressed people really don't appreciate being told that pride is underpinning their depression. But pride blinds us to its own presence. That's how it works. You can't know that you're full of pride. All you can do in sanctimonious righteousness is say, yeah, I know there's a lot of pride in me. If you really saw the pride in you and in me the way God does, you would be driven to repentance. Pride blinds. 
And it seems awful to say this in the context of Elijah's depression, but look what he does. For the first time in Elijah's ministry, we see more personal pronouns than at any point before. Here's what some of them are. He ran for his life. He himself went a day's journey. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. You see, Elijah had all of his focus on God. He did all according to God's word. His spiritual compass went north, and God was at north. And all of a sudden, that compass needle flipped right back to himself. He's the center. It's about him. It's his life. It's no longer the glory of God. And this is the depressed person's world. A depressed person is one in which he or she is the center of the universe. And Elijah's saying, when he says, for I am no better than my fathers, meaning the prophets that have gone before him, I've failed. I have failed. Jezebel and Ahab still don't want to worship God. I've done nothing better than the prophets before me. Israel won't change But friends, whoever asked Elijah to be better than the prophets before him? Nobody. God had never said, Elijah, I'm raising you up to be better than the prophets before you. This was Elijah's own burden put on him, his own self, and he's wallowing in shame and guilt and pride. When we begin to forget our place in God's redemptive work, the sense of failure is always coming. Listen, I know this one really well. Do you know how often pastors check attendance records? Do you know what one of the first questions that comes to any pastor at a pastor's conference is? How many people are in your church and how big is your budget? Pastors are easily blinded, and it's so easy to develop a Messiah complex. People are coming to see me and to hear me preach, and it's utterly not the truth. But when a pastor begins to be blinded by pride, and they begin to think they're the reason the church is growing, or a person says, I'm the reason that marriage is still together, it was my counsel, it's my prayers, it's my encouragement, this job, this business, this company is thriving because of my efforts. Listen, that's the Messiah complex, and you're going to experience the broom tree sooner or later. Pride blinds, it is lethal, and it will lead you into the wilderness. We've seen fear, we've seen isolation, we've seen pride. Look at another one, the final one today, and we'll pick it up again next week. We see fatigue. Friends, Elijah was exhausted. He had just walked over 100 miles, likely very fast. And my wife pointed out to me a very interesting point that I had missed in my studying. When he went from Mount Carmel to Jezreel in the power of God, 18 miles, that was God giving him the strength. But when he fled from Jezebel, from Jezreel to Beersheba and into the wilderness, God's strength was absent. absent. That was Elijah's own strength. And our own strength always runs out. 
He just headed a national revival. He had just put 400 wicked, 450 wicked prophets to death. Listen, I don't know. I don't, I don't really even care how righteous a person's motives are. When you end the life of other people, it has a residual effect. Think of that when you pray for our military. Vince Lombardi famously said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And it echoes a Greek proverb that says, you will break the bow if you keep it always bent. Listen, our bodies cannot sustain endless, frenetic busyness. How many of you have one day a month where a significant portion of that day is spent by yourself in the word of God on your knees before your almighty Savior? getting your batteries recharged, getting energy and power from God to give you the the energy and the power to do what he's asking you to do. How many of you do that regularly once a month? Rhetorical question. Think about that. Especially if you're in a caregiving field. We have a lot of nurses. We've got a lot of counselors. We've got a lot of people who give care to other people. And you're constantly giving out, and you're constantly, constantly giving out. What's pouring in? What's, where's Romans 5.8 occurring, where the love of God is pouring into our hearts so that they overflow with love? You can't overflow with a dry tank. If we're going to be powerful for God and sustain a life of service to God, we've got to learn regular times and seasons where we slow down and let him fill us. Your coming to church on Sunday mornings is not really sufficient. I love this part. This is so... I could touch this part of Elijah, his life. He finally collapses into sleep. Parents, take note. God let him sleep. He didn't chide Elijah for sleeping when there was work to do or for being lazy or struggling. Now, teens, if you're in here, don't think you get a pass. Because God kept waking him up. and sending an angel. It's time to eat, Elijah, then go back to sleep. There's boundaries on both sides. God's a God of order. But a severely depressed person wants to sleep. One close friend of mine would crawl her way up the stairs, find her way into her bed, and pull every coat she had over her body to try to disappear into oblivion and sleep. That's how depressed she was. But God would wake him up and there... There, as he woke up, was fresh-baked flatbread. By the way, this is still bread that the nomadic tribes in that area make today. They, they make it and they bake it over hot coals and hot stones to delicacy. And then he let Elijah go back to sleep. Elijah was exhausted. He was famished. Friends, listen, depression affects the body and your body affects depression. We are integrated fully. Today, the most popular understanding of depression is called the biochemical hypothesis, which suggests that depression is caused by serotonin levels being deficient in the brain. 
And while there, there likely is something to do because our bodies are inextricably integrated with our souls, while there's likely something there, that explanation conveniently avoids and eliminates the spiritual causes of depression. So look again at what God gives Elijah in verse 6. Elijah is emotionally, physically, spiritually exhausted. He wakes up. Now listen, this is key. This is important. There was at his head a cake baked on hot stones, that's bread, and a jar of water. Bread and water. Earlier in chapter 17, God fed him meat. Abundantly in Palestine, abundantly in Israel, the staple of drink was wine. Why didn't God bring him wine? Why didn't he bring him meat? Why was it bread and water? Well, there's significance in this. Somebody's going to say it's because he needed the carbs. You are a sick individual. There's a better, I mean that in love, there's a better reason. And it's found in what the emblems of bread and water point to. Rather, who they point to. Listen, they are symbols of the person and the power of Jesus Christ, who in the New Testament is called the bread of life. And in the New Testament promises to give living water. Now, all of a sudden, we're seeing the spiritual roots even underneath the physical symptoms. And God is, in effect, saying, Elijah, you ran from Jezreel to Carmel because the hand of the Lord was on you. But you ran from Jezreel to this bush, 110 miles in your own strength. You're living by your own power, and it's left you exhausted without even the will to live. You've forgotten that I fill you with the power to do everything I've asked you to do. But I am the bread of life. And I can give you the power to do what I ask you to do. And I will give you living water that will pour out of you so full of hope and joy that it will run out to those around you. So arise and eat, he says in verse 5 and 7 through the angel. Let me give you the strength and the hope that you need. You know, most depression occurs because we forget that we cannot live apart from Jesus Christ. You heard the word most, right? We have no power unless we abide with him. Well, Pastor Tim, that's kind of audacious to say that. Look at verse 6 again. This is so important. The literal words are important in the scriptures. Don't gloss over them. So the food was placed where? Where? Why not at his feet? to give him power and strength and vitality? Why not at his side to give him support? At his head, because Elijah was forgetting. These are important. Elijah was forgetting the truth that he had learned in his training. It's the Lord that is Yahweh, the covenantal faithful God. He is Elohim, the sovereign, mighty king of kings. Elijah, why are you afraid of Jezebel? Why are you, is your whole life living out in the lie of fear? Why, is, why are lies distorting truth and governing your life? You've got to fill truth into your mind. You've got to remember who I am. So the food was found at his head. And so it is for us, friends. Is this finding its way into your mind to renew your heart? To give you the truth that God has given you everything you need to do all he's asked you to do. 
And he is funneling living water in you so that it pours out to those who have no hope and are thirsty. But we're out of time this morning. There's so much more to learn from this. I hope you're here next week. If you're not, get it on the website. We're going to pick it up next week, Lord willing, and see the hope that we've got in God. But let me end with this. Hold on. Don't put your Bibles away. Are you under that broom tree? Don't think that all depression looks just like Elijah's. Are you in that wilderness? Are you battling with despair, discouragement, frustration? Teetering on the edge of giving up? Let me tell you something. Elijah's in the middle of the wilderness, 15 miles from anyone, and God found him there. He knows exactly where you are. And he will not leave you under that bush. He will put at your head truth. But you have to rise up and eat. Get in the word of God if you're struggling. Don't separate from people. Don't run when the lion roars. And get your body the rest it needs and feed it well. Lord, thank you for the promises of your presence, Lord, in every one of us. No matter where we are, Lord, there is no desert too big that you cannot find us. And Lord, every child of yours, you will bring help in the right time. He made it 110 miles on his own. He was still in training. You let him get to the end of his rope. And then you came. Some of us might be at the end of our rope. And Lord, it is time, and you know in your perfect wisdom, it is time to arrive to their help. Some of us are on the journey south And we're heading to the wilderness. Lord, whether you interrupt it now or whether you allow us to get to the broom tree, it will be in your perfect wisdom. And you will bring bread in the person of Jesus. And you will bring living water in the power of Christ. And you will bring us back to the mountain which we're about to see. Pray for that to happen in Jesus' name. Amen.